Thank you, Mike. My mother wrote that. It was so well done. <laughs> On behalf of the board, thank you so much for carving time out of your busy schedules to come here tonight. Uh, we are excited, to say the least, to have someone of world-renowned status here come and speak, and we'll get to Bob here in a minute. But uh, the board needs to thank a few people that made this evening possible. And one of those is Amy Flynn and gang. Uh, the board is made up of a group of men, and that is dangerous on many, many fronts. And so we need uh, the feminine counterpart to kind of pull things together for us. Otherwise, who knows what you'd had at the table. So uh, Amy, if you would, would you stand and come up? We just want to give you a little gift to say thanks. All right, and then we have three other ladies who helped out, uh, helped manage the table out here. That is Jan Warner. Jan, if you'll stand, we want to thank you. Marianne Davis, thank you. I know they're hating me for this. Jill Pittman, and we have gifts for you guys too. also need to thank Bruce Reed for filling in for Paul Druck, who normally handles our sound on Thursday mornings. And so, Bruce, thank you so much. Uh, a good sound guy you never know is there. So uh, that's nice. And we want to thank the Woodland Country Club. Is Robert Reynolds in the house? Is Robert somewhere in the room? Robert oversees Woodland Country Club, and he is an attendee, a member of Iron to Iron. So, Robert, to you and your staff, I don't know if you can hear us, thank you very much. Give them a round of applause. Okay. Robert's bent over backwards many, many times for us. Well, as Mike has stated, Iron to Iron was established to create a venue for in-depth Bible study. Uh, our target has been a men's ministry, which in the last year has grown from an average of 65 men to 85 men a week. In fact, we hit 94 a couple weeks ago, which was exciting. Uh, to have a group of men gathering around the Word from 7 to 7.50 is pretty exciting, uh, to say the least. And so, man, if you're not joining us, we'd love to have you. We jokingly say if everyone came the same week, we'd probably have, oh, there's over 200 on the list who, who uh, received the weekly email. But um, it's just exciting to see. And as, as Mike stated, uh, the resources are on our website. They are free. That was intentional, just as this event is free. The board, again, it was seeking to provide some venues that uh, you could ex access and to have some exposure that you wouldn't normally do. To have someone like a Bob Chisholm in our midst, uh, yes, you read his books. And by the way, he didn't ask me to do this, but I'm going to. Uh, he has numerous books that he has published. He's working on a commentary, a several volume commentary on Isaiah. Is that right, Bob? Two volumes on Isaiah from Kriegel. I cannot wait to get my hands on that. Uh, he has written a handbook of the prophets, which is superb. In fact, it's dedicated to his wife, Deborah. And Deborah, we're so happy to have you here tonight. Uh, if you don't have it, you need to, to obtain a copy. It's just excellent. And he has another one on interpreting the historical books. Uh, they're superb volumes. One is by Kriegel, the other is by Baker, and I'll leave those, just don't let them walk, but I'll leave them here. You can look at them later. I'll leave them on that table in the entrance way. Well, this event, this evening event, again, was to expose us firsthand to a prominent biblical scholar. 
Um, Dr. Bob Chisholm serves as the department chair and senior professor of Old Testament studies at Dallas Theological Seminary. Dr. Chisholm is, as I mentioned, author of numerous books, a couple of those. He also served as the editor to the Net Bible. Uh, we have been very privileged in the four years to have New Testament, Dan Wallace, and then to have Bob Chisholm, who's handled the Old Testament side. I've had the incredible privilege of studying personally uh, with Bob in class as a student studying Hebrew, and his passion for the language, I can assure you, is very contagious. In fact, I almost switched from Greek to Hebrew, almost is the, the word that we will use. Uh, I couldn't figure out tickle, 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 but anyways, there, we'll leave it at that. He can explain that later. Dr. Chisholm is one of the most amazing professors I ever had because it wasn't just his excellent academic prowess, his ability to exegete the word. I remember often walking out of class going, wow, that is amazing. That is a God we serve, you know, how he would just expound the word. But that's what was driving it all, and that's what marked him. It was one who was passionate about the Lord and passionate about the word. And there are many who are indebted to you, Bob, and I personally want to thank you in front of this group for all that you have done for me. Would you please welcome me, join me in welcoming our speaker tonight, Dr. Robert Chisholm. Good evening. Thank you, David, for those kind words. It was a pleasure to have David as a student. I've had so many great students over the years, and David is one of them. And you're very, very blessed to have someone of David's caliber uh, doing your Bible studies. Um, I'm absolutely impressed that this many people would come out on a Friday night to study the Word. Uh, I, I'm really impressed. Thank you for coming. Uh, this wouldn't happen in Texas because in Texas, Friday night is Friday night lights. <laughs> and uh, it's as phenomenal as basketball is here on Friday nights uh, beginning in the winter. Uh, the town we used to live in had two stadiums. Uh, one 20,000 would hold 20,000 and the other one 10,000. And uh, people would just flock to them on Friday nights. So this probably wouldn't happen on Friday nights and we probably wouldn't go to anything on Friday night because this past year, my wife and I have gotten into a new hobby, square dancing. It's all part of our anti-dementia program. <laughs> the, uh, we, you know, you do something new and challenging. Does anybody hear square dance? Yeah, it's, it's very challenging. You've got to keep track of all these 66 calls, and we just do mainstream. We don't do plus. There's some additional ones beyond that. And, and the caller is just cranking them out, like right and left. And, well, it's, it's very challenging. It's a good anti-dementia exercise. I would highly recommend it. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about myself uh, beyond what David said, just the academic. How did I get into this line of work? Well, when I was growing up, I was a big sports fan. Uh, there's a World Series going on, I think, uh, tonight. Yeah, I, I don't care. My, my team, the Yankees, was uh, eliminated. But I grew up in upstate New York, and I wanted to be a sports writer. Once I decided I wasn't good enough to be the shortstop for the New York Yankees, I shifted my focus, well, I'll be a baseball writer. And so I went to Syracuse University. Uh, to study journalism, and that was one of my majors there, along with uh, history. Uh, 
and I was going to become a sports writer. But about halfway through my college career, I had a spiritual awakening. I had trusted Christ as my Savior when I was a little boy, but I never really internalized my faith, which I think a lot of us do when we get to a certain age. And I had a spiritual awakening between my sophomore and my junior year, and so I just became really interested in studying the Bible. And my pastor saw this, and he said, you need to go to seminary. I said, what's a seminary? I had no clue what it was. And he said, well, you go and study the Bible, and then you go out and you minister, you teach people. Sounded good to me. He said, of course, you'll take Greek and Hebrew. I go, why? <laughs> and he had to explain to me that the Bible was written in Greek and Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic. We shouldn't forget that. And so... I thought, well, maybe I'll go to seminary, but graduation time came and I still hadn't decided what I was going to do. And I was interviewing for a job with a Cleveland plain dealer in a journalism position. And before the interview was over, I was presenting the gospel to the interviewer. And he said to me, he said, young man, when you get as much zeal for news writing as you have for your faith, you come see me. I took that as a word from the Lord. I needed to go to seminary. So I went off to uh, Grace Seminary in, uh, up in Winona Lake, Indiana. Uh, some of the best years of my life, uh, I met my wife there. Uh, and we were married on uh, October 26th. Our anniversary is tomorrow. 45 years it'll be, uh, 1974. Yeah. So... Uh, and then I went off to uh, get my uh, doctorate, and I've been teaching ever since. And so I enjoy it a lot. And I'm excited about studying this topic with you tonight. Recently, I wrote a chapter for a book on the subject of the fear of the Lord, and I'd never studied it as thoroughly as I had to for this writing assignment. Uh, and I, I got real excited about it and uh, teaching it to others. And so... I hope that you uh, find it interesting this evening. We're going to focus on the fear of the Lord, what that means, and we're going to look especially at Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job, because the fear of the Lord is an important theme in all three of those books. But before we go there, as you can see on the screen up here, I've got Genesis. And I want to look at Genesis 22 briefly. Uh, this is a passage that... Uh, is uh, very important in our understanding of the scriptures. It's where the Lord asks Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac. And we read at the beginning of Genesis 22, verse 1, sometime later, God tested Abraham. So you may be wondering, why would God need to test somebody? Doesn't he know everything? That's a subject for another evening. <laughs> I've actually written an article on, Does God Discover Facts? Uh, the Anatomy of an Anthropomorphism. If you want to look it up, <laughs> you, you, you can Google me where I get into all of that. But God tested Abraham. And so immediately we're wondering, what is the test going to be? And it's a major test. Because you know, if you've been tracking Abraham's life at this point, he's up and down uh, in terms of his faith. And so God is going to test him to see if he really is worthy of inheriting the promise that he has made to him. And so God is testing Abraham, and he asks him to do something very, very difficult that seems counter to everything that God has been doing. He tells him, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, 
That's pretty significant. Whom you love, God recognizes the strong bond that's there. And go to Moriah and sacrifice him. It's shocking. It's absolutely shocking. I do a Bible study uh, with uh, some Jews. Uh, it's a Jewish Christian Bible study. It's not Messianic Jews. These are Jewish Jews uh, that have not yet trusted the, uh, the, the Savior. Uh, and one of the rabbis that studies with us, he thinks Abraham pat, uh, flunked the test. <laughs> uh, he, uh, he said uh, recently, uh, Abraham should have objected at this point. He should have objected to what God was doing, just like he did when he heard that Sodom and Gomorrah were, was going to be destroyed. He should have objected and said, no, God, this is out of character with you, and I am not going to do it. Well, I think he's wrong. <laughs> Because God commends Abraham for what he was doing. He's testing him, but he's giving him a very difficult test that seems to go against the grain of who God is. A lot of people struggle with this. Why would God ask a man to do a human sacrifice, to sacrifice his own son? What kind of God would do that? Uh, a few years ago, I had the opportunity to do an interview. ABC was doing a show, Back to the Beginning. I don't know if you remember that. Christian Amanpour. Uh, and so they called me up one day, talked to me for a while, and then asked me to come up to New York to do an interview with her. Now, I only got on the show, you know, here and there a little bit. But one of the questions, knee to knee with Christiane Amanpour for 75 minutes. You ought to do it sometime. It's, uh, it's uh, quite, a, <laughs> quite an experience. She was asking all these difficult questions. I think I was the token evangelical. And I was, uh, she was asking me one question after another, and she came to this passage, and she says, what do you think about a God who would ask someone to sacrifice his own child? Uh, don't you find that problematic? And I said, well, it was a test. And it was like, oh. <laughs> and then I explained what was going on. It was a test. He wasn't going to let him do it, but he wanted to give Abraham the ultimate test. He wanted Abraham to trust him enough that he would do what he was told, even when it seemed to go contrary to his character. And it was so funny because the producer of the show steps out from behind a curtain and says, stop. <laughs> she says, I don't care if we're going on next week. She says, we are going to, he's right, we're going to redo this. <laughs> she saw immediately when I, when I pointed out to her in the, in the text what was going on that God was testing Abraham. It's, it's right there. It's important to see. So you know the test. And Abraham doesn't complain. Uh, he doesn't lie around moaning and groaning. He doesn't object like the rabbi wanted uh, him to do. He, he, he doesn't do that. And he's ready to sacrifice his own son. And then in verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven the angel, the messenger from the Lord, who is speaking for the Lord. Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God. And that's our theme right there. Abraham did this. God was testing him to see if he feared him. That was the test because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And, and Hebrews gives us further insight into this. Abraham, when asked to conduct this test, he didn't know it was a test when God said, we know it because we read it in the text, but Abraham didn't know that. He went ahead and did it. 
He was ready to do it because he understood by faith that God could give him his son back. He trusted God enough to obey him. And that's really what the fear of the Lord is. You respect the Lord's authority enough that you will obey him, even when it doesn't seem to make sense. You fear him. Uh, and uh, so I wanted to start with that passage because I think it's a very important theme in the Old Testament. I was sitting around with one of my colleagues, Gordon Johnston, recently, and there's this big issue in Old Testament theology. What's the center of Old Testament theology? What's the key theme? And I'm not sure there is a center, one theme that's central to everything. But we both thought it might be the fear of the Lord. It just might be the fear of the Lord. Uh, it, it's so important. Uh, and in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 10, verse 12, you see the Lord emphasizing this with uh, Israel. Now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? Kind of bottom line, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. So you can see fearing the Lord is central to Israel's experience. It's what the Lord expects them to do. And notice how it's associated very, very closely with obedience and love. So it's a very important theme in the Old Testament. We want to focus on the wisdom books. The wisdom books of the Old Testament are Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. There are wisdom themes everywhere. There are actual psalms that are wisdom psalms, but these are the three wisdom books. And we're going to look more closely at those this evening. I've given you some notes. I won't read those to you. We professors sometimes do that <laughs> at conferences, but I am pretty much going to follow the contours of it, and I'll just be uh, expanding on some things that I've said, skipping over some others. That's more for your uh, future study. I'd encourage you to go back through it after this evening and study all of these verses and really get into the theme. But out there in the scholarly world, a lot of Old Testament scholars will say that Proverbs contradicts Ecclesiastes and Job. Or you could say it the other way. They're not unified books at all. You have competing opinions. I don't agree with that. I think it's wrong. And I'm going to try to prove to you this evening that it's wrong, that these books are all on the same page, and they all revolve around the theme of the fear of the Lord. They're in agreement on that. But one scholar puts it this way, David Hubbard. Proverbs seems to say, here are the rules for life. Try them and find they will work. Job and Ecclesiastes say, we did and they don't. <laughs> Another scholar, Richard Schultz, who's a fine evangelical scholar, he believes that the books are unified. He teaches up at Wheaton. Uh, he put it this way in an article he wrote as he framed the discussion and the way some people look at it. Schultz uh, says a little more of a scholarly style quote, most scholars would claim that the type of theological diversity found in the Old Testament wisdom literature is anything but complementary or mutually enriching. Instead, the skepticism, pessimism, even cynicism or nihilism of Kohelet's, Kohelet is the Hebrew word for Ecclesiastes. So when you see that, think Ecclesiastes. 
Kohelet's and Job's broken worlds are set against the rosy-eyed optimism of Proverbs' tidy world. First of all, Proverbs isn't that tidy. <laughs> and I don't think that I would characterize Ecclesiastes and Job as pessimistic, cynical, nihilistic. I, I'm not so sure I would characterize them that way. Uh, and so I think Richard, Richard goes on to try to show that that view is wrong in the article that I cite, and I'm going to try to show it to you tonight. That Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job, yes, they seem very different when you read them, but they're all on the same page. They're all in agreement that the fear of the Lord is the basis for wisdom. And without it, you can never have a proper relationship with God. So let's uh, dive in. Let's look at Proverbs. We'll start there. And you're familiar, I'm sure, with uh, some of these verses, but we'll look at them anyway. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. You can see from the parallelism in the verse that knowledge, wisdom, and discipline are very closely related. Uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or wisdom. Starts there. And a little bit later in Proverbs 9.10, we also read, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, it's the beginning of wisdom. Interestingly enough, in the Hebrew text, the word translated beginning is a different word in 1.7 than the one in 9.10. These are different words for beginning. Uh, we translate it the same way. Uh, but let's talk about what is meant by the fear of the Lord according to Proverbs. And I've got a big paragraph on this uh, in your notes, which I won't read all of that. But bottom line, the fear of the Lord means that you recognize the Lord's authority and you bow before him and you obey him, like Abraham did, even when it may not make sense. And you can't explain, why does God tell us to do this? Why is this command there? Doesn't make any sense to me. I'm not going to do it. No, 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 no. The fear of the Lord, you recognize his authority. And if God says this is the way we're supposed to operate, this is the way we're supposed to do it, we do it. And also what we're going to see in these Proverbs is you have to be teachable and you also have to shun evil. So it's a moral category, fearing the Lord. You have to turn away from evil and you have to obey the Lord. Fundamentally, that's what the fear of the Lord is. Uh, lots of times in the Old Testament, fear is just terror, you know, being terrified. But I don't think that's what is meant in passages that talk about the fear of the Lord, that use that expression. You can study it throughout the Old Testament, and it's not this terror, just trembling before the Lord. There's a healthy respect for him, the kind of fear I had before my father, who I loved, but I knew what would happen if I went against the rules, God's rules or household rules, like you don't talk back to your mother. Uh, I found out very quickly that <laughs> there's reason to fear my father if I break that rule, um, because that rule is good for me and it's good for the household. So it's, it's, this, it's not this terror, this trembling. It's more a healthy respect for God and his authority. Um, that we, that we see. But Proverbs 3 is probably the best passage on this. And again, you're probably familiar with it. 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. So you've got to humble yourself to fear the Lord. You really do. Because let's face it, we all want to trust in our own abilities, our own know-how. Sometimes we think we know better than God. We want to lean on our own understanding. I got this figured out. Uh, no, we don't. And so we need to trust in the Lord. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. God hates pride, by the way. Fear the Lord and shun evil. So notice in the context how fearing the Lord means not being wise in your own eyes, humbling yourself, recognizing that He's the one who knows way, way better than you do. And recognizing his authority, saying, I'm going to obey God no matter what, and I'm going to turn away from what he calls evil. That's the fear of the Lord in Proverbs. Well, what does it mean when it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, or the beginning of knowledge? Um, it's, uh, I think it's the starting point. Some people will say it's the fundamental principle. Uh, and that's certainly a possible way to take it. It may be involved, but I think it's kind of the starting point. But it's not the starting point in this way, as if I'm going to walk across. I'm, I'm starting here. I start with the fear of the Lord, and I move away from that. And I just start walking over here. That's not the way we should view it. We should view it as the starting point moving vertically, uh, like we're on a ladder. It, it's what holds us up. It's foundational. And one writer has uh, stated it that way, and I include that in the uh, notes uh, on the second page, if you're kind of following along. The temporally first step in this case is not on a horizontal axis that can be left behind, but on a vertical axis on which all else rests. And I really like this metaphor that he uses. The fear of the Lord is sort of like what the alphabet is to reading. You know? My four-year-old grandson is learning the alphabet. He's really nailed it. He hasn't begun to read yet, but he would never be able to read without first learning the alphabet. It's fundamental to everything else. Notes to reading music. We don't use hymn books in our church anymore, so we don't get to follow the notes. <laughs> I kind of miss that, um, but uh, you need notes to read music uh, and numerals to mathematics. That's what the fear of the Lord is for wisdom, for living. It's absolutely fundamental. And that's what Proverbs is saying. So that's the Proverbs view. We're very familiar with this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the starting point. And the fear of the Lord means to obey God and it means to turn away from evil. Now, what about Ecclesiastes and Job? We're going to spend more, most of our time this evening on those books. I don't know how, when the last time you, was you read them, but I would highly recommend them. Uh, if you consider yourself an older person, like I do, <laughs> um, I think you find them very, very interesting and relevant. Um, I was asked before we started, what are the books that I focus on in my teaching? Well, back in the 80s, when I was just getting started, I call that my prophet's phase. Uh, and I, I taught Isaiah and Amos and the Minor Prophets and loved that. And then I moved into my narrative phase. 
Judges, Samuel, Genesis, really love that, these stories of the Bible, the true stories of the Bible, how literature works and that, and that sort of thing. Very Still doing all of that. But then when I got older, all of a sudden Ecclesiastes drew me to it. And Job, I was just drawn to these books because they were dealing with issues that really were concerns for me now. The meaning of life. I'm getting older. Uh, it's, it's all going to go up in smoke one of these days. The theme song for Ecclesiastes. Remember Kansas? Dust in the wind. <laughs> I thought about showing it tonight, but we won't, we won't do that. There's a real cool video. Um, but that seems to be the theme in Ecclesiastes. And so many people have asked over the years, what in the world is a book like that doing in the Bible? How can you say that life is like dust in the wind? But that's what Ecclesiastes does say, but that's not really what Ecclesiastes is saying. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. And then Job. You know, I've lived long enough now that I've had some experiences, nothing like what poor Job went through. But there was actually a time in my life when I wondered, am I ever really going to suffer? <laughs> it seems like a lot of people I know are going through these awful experiences and is anything like that ever really going to happen to me? And I thought maybe, maybe I'm living a charmed life or something. I don't know. But no, no, no. <laughs> that all changed. That all changed. Uh, my wife, one of her brothers, was killed in a car accident when he was 17. Another brother of hers uh, died in his 30s uh, from testicular cancer, leaving five little girls ages 3 through 11 behind. Uh, my wife had some questions uh, when that happened. Why would God do this? And then I remember the worst week of my life when my daughter, uh, her, her fiancé, was killed in a motorcycle accident. And I, I can still remember. It was Super Bowl Sunday. And, uh, and she called and she uh, said, uh, Tommy's been, been uh, in an accident. I go, well, is he okay? Is he in the hospital? No, she, he's dead. And she, she just went through a very difficult uh, week, and we went through that with her. So I learned about what suffering is. Uh, live long enough, and uh, you'll find out what suffering is all about. I'm sure that you probably have all gone through experiences like that. And the book of Job is there for us in that regard. Job has gone before, and we can learn a lot about how God operates in the world. Uh, and with his people from the book of Job. And so I've just been drawn to Ecclesiastes and Job. Uh, they're very difficult to uh, understand sometimes, but uh, I'm drawn to them. And if you want a little help, I actually have notes. I, I teach an adult Sunday school class at my church, and I actually have notes on both books, which I'd be happy to send to David, uh, and he could email them to you. I, I, I don't mind sharing my stuff. Um, so... Who knows whether I'll get to publish something on those books. So I, I'll just share my notes. If, uh, if you want my notes on Ecclesiastes, is this okay to do this? I'm, am I creating work for you? <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming you have an email list of uh, the folks, and yet it would be real easy to just turn that right around and send it on. Okay, yeah. So if you're interested in my notes, I'd be happy to uh, share those. Uh, so let's talk about Ecclesiastes. Uh, and we're going to start at the end. We're going to start with the end of the book, 
And in Ecclesiastes, traditionally uh, viewed as uh, the author as Solomon, and I don't want to get into the authorship issue tonight. It's not relevant to what we're doing. No matter who wrote it, the message is pretty much the same. Um, so in the end of the book, you have a, another voice. Uh, in Ecclesiastes, there is the teacher. Uh, in Hebrew, he's called Kohelet. He's like the assembly leader. But we often call him the teacher, and he's the main speaker. But there's what we call a frame editor. Now, I happen to believe that the frame editor and the teacher are one and the same. It's a, it's a literary thing that's going on. But the frame editor introduces the teacher at the beginning of the book, and then at the end, when the teacher's finished, and the teacher starts with everything's vanity, everything's empty, and then he ends that way. And then the... the the frame editor comes in and he comments on this. And there are some out there who believe that the frame editor at the end, uh, he's the orthodox guy who comes along and says the teacher was wrong. I don't see how you can argue that way when you read what the frame editor said. So let's do that. Then we're going to go back into the book and talk about what the teacher's really trying to do. Not only was the teacher wise, so right off the bat he says, the teacher's wise. Uh, and if you read you know, in the book, the wise are contrasted with fools. So this is a compliment, um, as you might imagine. Not only was the teacher wise, so he's, he's very wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. So he did his research, and then he worked hard at arranging everything just right. Doesn't sound like a critique to me. It sounds like he's saying he's done a good job. The teacher searched to find just the right words, just like a writer would do. He worked hard at thinking it through. What's the best word for this? It reminds me of journalism class. We'd do this at Syracuse. We'd, we'd write these articles and then we'd come to class and it was awful. The teacher would just go through them and criticize them and your fellow students would be like attacking you. And it was brutal. It was brutal. And we had to do our little headline writing. And I remember one time I had a subheading that says Wisniewski. Lance, Wisn Lance Wisniewski. Okay. And he'd come up with some idea. And so I was writing about that, and I put, Wisniewski conceives. <laughs> now think about that. And the teacher turned to me, and she goes, really, Bob? <laughs> Why don't you tell us about that? How did, how did Lance Wisniewski conceive? Yeah. Obviously, he couldn't have a baby, right? Um, so it was brutal. But the teacher searched to find just the right words. And you know if you've written things... It's, it can be tedious sometimes. You're looking for just the right word. He says the teacher searched for just the right words. He said it just the right way. And what he wrote was upright and true. And if you've read through Ecclesiastes, you're wondering at this point, really? <laughs> Some of the things he says mm, don't sound upright and true. Uh, the words of the wise, uh, including the uh, teacher here, are and he's putting the teacher in that category, the wise, are like goads. They're like cattle prods. Uh, that's what the word means. 
They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. So the words of the wise, when you read them, when you read a book like Ecclesiastes, even Proverbs, Job, it's like they're like cattle prods. It's like the Lord is taking a cattle prod and prodding you. And furthermore, there's nails on the end of the prod so that you get the point. <laughs> you know? And so he seems to be acknowledging that the teacher had some good things to say. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books, there is no end. Amen. And much study wearies the body. I remember one time after we finished that Bible, all this translating and editing, and it, I loved it. It was, it was enjoyable, but someone was interviewing us. And they were you know, asking us, what, what did you learn from your work in the Net Bible? And they came to me and I said, well, you're not going to like this answer. <laughs> but Ecclesiastes 12.12, of making many books there is no end and much study wearies the body. <laughs> that, that, that's what I learned. You ever feel that way, David? <laughs> yeah. yeah. There, there are times, you know, trade secrets here. There are times when we are, are studying a text and we might spend two hours trying to figure out what a text is saying with all of our Greek and Hebrew tools. And then we write it down in the notes and we realize what I just took two hours to figure out with the help of the Holy Spirit and the Lord, I'm going to say in two minutes. And you can get discouraged with that, but you press on because this is the word of God. Um, so it doesn't sound to me like the frame editor is criticizing the teacher at all. Uh, he's commending him. Uh, and then verse 13. Now all has been heard. Okay, we've said enough. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Here's what I want you to learn from this book, what the teacher has written. Fear God. Isn't that interesting? Fear God and keep his commandments. Notice how it's always related to obedience. We saw that with Abraham, uh, with Israel in Deuteronomy 10. It's always related to obedience. If you fear me, you will obey me. Jesus said that about love. Same would be true of fear. For this is the whole duty of man. Bottom line, it comes down to this. Are you going to fear God and obey him? And we live in a world and in a society that has decided, no, I'm not going to. And look at where we're at. Look at the mess that we've made throughout human history and we're continuing to make to, uh, today. Four adds a little motivation here. Somebody says, why should I fear God? Four, God will bring every deed into judgment. Oh, there's a judgment day coming, including every hidden thing, every hidden thing what you do in secret, what you think, whether it is good or evil. And we know from Jesus, when Jesus interpreted the law, remember what he said? Uh, you've committed adultery in your heart if you've looked on a woman to lust. You may ne never have committed adultery, but if you thought about it, you sinned. And God knows that. And he'll hold you accountable for those things. I, I do evangelism at the uh, Texas State Fair. 
uh, it's, it's a real rush. You ought to try it sometime. If at the end, go to, uh, we stand in a booth and we just bring people over and uh, we follow a method used by Ray Comfort and Kirk Cameron, if you're familiar with them. And we just engage all kinds of people uh, in evangelism. And we ask them, have you broken God's law? Have you ever done this and this and this? Remember one time I said to a couple of women, have you uh, committed adultery? They go, oh yeah, <laughs> they admitted it. <laughs> But sometimes you have to go deeper. If they say, no, I, I haven't done that, um, then you have to say, well, have you thought about it? Oh, yeah, the hidden things. Remember one time I said to a little girl, uh, uh, have you ever sinned? Have you ever done wrong? Just a wee little thing. She goes, no, but I hate my brother. <laughs> so. That was an interesting one because God had programmed her for the gospel. I, and, I, and he just brought this to my mind. I, I hope I can go off on rabbit trails a little bit here. Uh, we, uh, he, he just brought this to my mind all of a sudden. I said, have you ever watched The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe? Have you ever read that? She just, we, just, we just watched the film yesterday. I go, oh my goodness. <laughs> I said, well, do you remember what Edmund did? She goes, yeah. And remember what Aslan did to rescue him? And it was great because I got to use the story the way Lewis intended it for kids. And oh, you could just, she, it resonated with her. She understood what sin was. And, and uh, yeah, she hates her brother. And I had to explain to her, well, that's sin. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, God sees all that. He sees every hidden thing. And so when we share the gospel, we need to make sure that people understand that. <laughs> Those hidden thoughts, you'll be judged for that. So it sounds as if the frame editor at the end is, he's very impressed with what the teacher said. But when you read what the teacher said, so much of it doesn't seem to be consistent with what we've seen elsewhere in the scriptures. You know, you die and your spirit, your breath goes back to God and that's it. That's not what the Bible teaches about death in the afterlife. There's all kinds of things uh, earlier in the book. Now, earlier in the book, the teacher does say that we're supposed to fear God. And I've listed the, uh, the passages uh, in here uh, on page uh, three. But there are some people who, when you go back to these verses, will say, well, he's saying fear God, but he doesn't mean the same thing that the frame editor does at the end. He just means be terrified of God. I don't think that's the case. I think here's what's going on in the book. The teacher has a strategy. And it's almost pre-evangelistic. See, Proverbs says to us, and Proverbs, it's like it's talking to believers. The fear of the Lord is foundational to everything. You'll never be wise in God's sight. You won't live life successfully and be blessed by him if you don't fear him and obey him and turn away from evil. It's foundational. That's, where, that's the starting point. Ecclesiastes is before that. He, he really seems to be speaking to people who are skeptics. That's why I say it's a great book for pre-evangelism. If you're thinking about doing one of those evangelistic Bible studies in your neighborhood or something like that, people do, this would be a great place to start. Even before the Gospel of John, this would be a great place to start. You got to break them down and then build them up. 
It's what Norman Dale said to his, uh, his uh, hickory team. Remember when he arrived in town? I got to break them down, then I'll build them back up. <laughs> they got to learn not to be ball hogs. They got to learn how to play as a team. Remember, that was that's my favorite movie. I've watched it like 40 times. Anyway, <laughs> um, So that's what he's doing in this book. Under the sun is used 29 times. And so it's what he's doing in the book. He's saying, I am going to tell you about life under the sun as we see it, as we experience it, apart from any special revelation from God. Uh, you think you're going to find meaning in life over here? No. I tried that. doesn't work. You think you're going to find meaning in life over here? Try that path. No, nope, dead end. They're all dead end streets. You're not going to find meaning in life because here's the bad news. We're all like dust in the wind. That doesn't come from here, but it's the, the theme. Uh, we're, all gonna, we're all victims of time and chance. Uh, and if you just kind of step away from your Christianity for a moment and think about things that happen out there, Christians don't live a charmed life. Sometimes they seem to be victims of time and chance. Now we know that God is sovereign over everything and nothing is ever out of his control, but it doesn't always make sense, does it? Lord, why did you allow that person to die so prematurely? They had such a great ministry. Why, Lord, why? Uh, Ecclesiastes says we're all victims of time and chance. Uh, and you're going to die, and it's going to be over. And guess what? Nobody's going to remember you. After a while, nobody's going to remember you. How many of you can name, well, we're, a lot of people are into genealogies these days. I, I can trace my ancestors on the Chisholm side back to the highlands of Scotland in 1720. My brother has done, been engaging in research. So I know their names. It's cool. But beyond that, I don't know who they were. Um, and guess what? You may have accumulated a lot of wealth, but you don't know what's going to happen to it. You may leave it to somebody. You may be a fool. That's what he says. Uh, and it'll go up in smoke. So everything that you've worked so hard on is going to go up in smoke. It's going to be dust in the wind. So God has given us morphine. That's my paraphrase. You might as well just enjoy a good meal, enjoy your spouse, uh, enjoy your friends, uh, and just kind of try to have a good time until it's all over. <laughs> morphine for a dying man. We're all cut flowers. Starting to get depressed? <laughs> so how, how in the world can the, the frame editor say all these wonderful things about the teacher? Because the teacher's got a strategy. He's trying to force you. He wants to get you to the point where you will fear God. Say, Proverbs starts there. Ecclesiastes is trying to get you there. And you've got to break it down before he builds you up. And so this is the way to approach things with people out there. They're trying to find meaning. Some are, have just given up. They're ready to hear. They need to fear the Lord. Others are trying to find meaning in a variety of ways. It's not going to work. Uh, and so it's a good discussion to have with your non-Christian friends. What's life all about? What do you think will uh, give you uh, joy and meaning? Uh, and actually work through the book. But periodically, he'll stop the teacher earlier in the book, chapter 3, chapter 5, chapter 7. We won't take the time to look them all up. 
and he'll say, God has rigged it this way, so fear him. But he never explains what he means by that. And so if you're reading the book the first time, you're wondering, fear him, what, what are you talking about? What's that mean? And he doesn't, he doesn't say. He just leaves it ambiguous. What do you mean? What, how do I fear God? Finally comes to chapter 8, and he tips his hand. And he says, the righteous fear God, and they're better off for it because the righteous keep God's ways. And I know that's the right way. But then he starts to backpedal, because he's in this under-the-sun mode. And so he's thinking about, I think, what objections might come up. And he's saying, but then again, I've seen the righteous treated very unjustly. And I've seen the wicked prosper. So I'm not so sure it really does pay off to fear God. He kind of backpedals, and you're wondering, hmm, what, what is up with this teacher? Why can't he just affirm the faith? Because he's in under-the-sun mode, and he's trying to look at the world just uh, as an unbeliever would, without special revelation from God. Uh, toward the end, in chapter 11, he says to young people, enjoy your youth while you can. Enjoy. You've got to be careful when you teach this. I taught it before, and I had a couple of young bucks, one of whom was my son, decide, oh, this endorses clubbing. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. You've got to read the whole thing. But remember, at, when you're young and you're trying to uh, enjoy life, remember, God is going to judge you someday. There's going to be a day of where you have to answer to him. Uh, and then he also says, you better fe uh, fear God, fear the Lord, before you get too old. And then chapter 12 is that classic passage on old age. Uh, well, if it's not, I used to think it was kind of humorous. You know, it, he pictures a town where everything is winding down and nobody can see or move anymore and grasshoppers can't hop and it's just, you know, nobody can hear and it's, it's, it's old age. Uh, and more and more, I don't find it so funny anymore. <laughs> we, we went on a cruise uh, few years back and it was one of those cruises where everybody's kind of old they needed to do square dancing <laughs> but they didn't. anyway everybody was moving real slow and I would say to my wife this is like Ecclesiastes 12 we come on we let's go let's get in the fast lane and get around this crowd and she would go shh, shh don't say that I says they haven't read Ecclesiastes 12 they don't know what's going on but but that's the way it is. Um, and then you come to the end and he says, hey, the teacher was wise. He, he knew what he was doing. And, and what he's doing, he's trying to convince you. See, if he just says, fear God and keep his commandments in chapter 3, the kind of people he's trying to reach would say, no, no, so go, go, I'm gone. That's like they do in evangelism. You get the gospel and they go, no, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. I, sorry, I don't want to talk about that. Uh, they don't want to hear Keep his, but, but if he just says, fear God, you don't know what that means. You're going to die. Life's, life has no meaning. You better fear God. Um, but he, doesn't, he never says what that is. He kind of tips his hand and says, well, it means to obey him. Then he kind of backs off that. But by the end, he leaves it to the frame editor, who I think he is. Uh, he's just got a different persona here. And he says, fear God and keep his commandments. Uh, so see the strategy? My uh, mentor, Don Glenn, 
who was a wonderful professor. I'm going to read a quote from him. Um, kind of small here. Let me make it a little bit bigger. It's from the Bible Knowledge Commentary, which is a one-volume commentary that uh, DTS put out several years ago. Don Glenn was my mentor, uh, the finest biblical exegete or interpreter I've ever met. Um, just had a problem with writing, hasn't written much, but his commentary on Ecclesiastes is a gem uh, in that series. Uh, just the finest interpreter, just a great mind for interpreting texts. Uh, very challenging uh, to students. Uh, he, would, he would write more on a paper that I, that I would submit. He would write more on it than I had written in real small little handwritten red, you know. <laughs> And then you look at the thing and you go, oh, no. And then you turn to the last page, 98. What, what did the poor guy who got an 88, what, what must his paper have looked like? Um, but he uh, had very high standards, but he, he was great. And, but here's his summary of what's going on in Ecclesiastes. He, the teacher, intended to demonstrate empirically to people the insecurity of all human effort to provide real meaning, value, or significance to their lives under the sun and to drive them to trust in God alone. We could say drive them to fear God. He was a believer who sought to destroy people's confidence in their own efforts, their own abilities, their own righteousness, and to direct them to faith in God as the only possible basis for meaning, value, and significance to life under the sun. I think that's the strategy that Ecclesiastes has. And so I think you need to read Ecclesiastes this way. Do you remember the movie The Sixth Sense? Spoiler alert if you've never seen it. Hey, it's been, if you haven't seen it by now, you're probably not going to see it. So I'm not going to feel guilty about this. Um, there's a kid. He's going to a counselor. The kid sees dead people. He sees dead people. And so for half the movie, you're thinking, this kid's crazy. <laughs> he, he's having visions. He sees dead people. And the counselor's trying to cure him of all of this. And then at a point in the movie, there's this turning point, remember? <laughs> and all of a sudden, you realize the kid's not crazy. <laughs> the kid sees dead people. The counselor's dead. <laughs> he was in an accident. He's dead. And the kid's trying to convince him of that uh, to, to help him make the, you know, it's not Christian, uh, to, to make the, <laughs> the transition to the afterlife. And all of a sudden, you, you, you go back and you watch the movie the second time and you realize now you see things. Remember that scene where he's in the restaurant with his wife? and they seem to be talking past each other. Uh, you don't see it real clearly the first time you're watching the movie, but the second time through, everything begins to make sense. You have a completely different perspective on the movie. You are now reading or watching the thing correctly from the correct perspective. That's what's going on in Ecclesiastes. First time reading, you're real confused, and it's intentional. So he wants to frustrate you. Let's see if you can figure out if there's any meaning under the sun without bringing God into the equation too much. Um, can't do it, can you? You better fear him. Well, what do you mean by that? He just moves on. 
But at the end of the book, the frame editor puts it all in perspective. And he says, are you convinced now that you're not going to be able to find meaning in life apart from God? Uh, that you need to fear him. And here's what that means. Fear God and obey his commandments. Uh, and of course, as Christians, we're going to go way beyond that, right? Because this is an Old Testament perspective. Fear God and keep his commandments. Well, we know from the New Testament we can't do that. And the Old Testament never said you could either. The whole sacrificial system is set up uh, because we can't keep his commandments. So when you go to the law, keep his commandments, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. And so Ecclesiastes is leading us toward Jesus. Uh, it, it leads us one step, and then the New Testament comes along and leads us the rest of the way. But Isaiah 53 already anticipates that anyway. That's in the Old Testament. So does that make sense? So if, it, if that's really the correct interpretation of Ecclesiastes, and I think it is, is Ecclesiastes really disagreeing with Proverbs? I don't think so. Ecclesiastes is saying, fear God. Uh, don't try to find meaning apart from God. You need to fear him. And it's trying to bring you to that point. And if you get to that point and you say, yes, I need to fear God, then Proverbs comes along and says, now let me explain to you what that looks like. Uh, here's what that's going to look like. Here's genuine wisdom, and it starts with fearing God. So I see the two books as working together in that way. All right, now, I want to talk about Job. Since we solved all the problems in Ecclesiastes, haha. Um, <clears throat> Job. Uh, what's going on in Job? Uh, early on in the book, we read that Job is a fearer of God. Uh, it's very important in reading Ecclesiastes, I'm uh, sorry, I'm, we're off Ecclesiastes, Job, to remember that Job is righteous. Now, I realize you're thinking, how can anybody be righteous? Only Jesus was righteous. But Job admits in the book that he does sin at times, but he's basically a loyal follower of the Lord who is doing his best to follow the Lord's way. Uh, and he can be classified as righteous in the Old Testament sense of the word. He's a follower of God. Uh, example I always use for this is, uh, let's take Chuck Swindoll, you know, who I think a great deal of. He, DTS, he used to be our president. Still going strong, preached in chapel the other day at a, on his 85th birthday. Uh, and Howard Stern. <laughs> okay? Now, I could say uh, Howard Stern is, uh, is not a godly person. <laughs> uh, Chuck Swindoll is. Practically speaking, but I could also say in light of what Paul says in Jesus I could also say Chuck, uh, Chuck Swindoll and Howard Stern are both vile sinners Separated from God and apart from the grace of God are headed toward uh, e Eternal hell Could say it that way that would be correct But I can also say it the other way practically speaking Chuck Swindoll is a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ He's seeking to fear the Lord. He's trying to obey God uh, and through the power of the Spirit, usually succeeding. Howard Stern isn't concerned about that. See, so there's a contrast. And that's the way I think Job is describing the character Job, the person Job. He's righteous from God's perspective. He hasn't done anything. Practically, he hasn't done anything that would justify what's going to happen to him in the book. Okay. But after that, you don't hear too much about the fear of God in the book of Job. 
But there is this one key passage in Job chapter 28, verse 28, um, where, and Job is talking to his so-called friends here, uh, and he said to man, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. He even goes beyond Proverbs. Proverbs says it's the beginning of wisdom. Job says it is wisdom. He equates fearing the Lord with wisdom. It's so fundamental to being wise, you can just say it's essentially, they're essentially the same thing. And to shun evil is understanding. Notice again, fearing the Lord is a moral category. It means obedience. It's the opposite of shunning, uh, what well, involves shunning evil. It's the opposite of doing evil. Um, so there is that key passage. But after this, you really don't hear much about it. Elihu talks about the fear of the Lord one time. And so some people say, well, the fear of God is not a major theme in Job. Uh, it just, it's, it's not a major theme. All you got is that chapter 28, verse 28, um, which makes it sound like it's pretty important, but it's, it's not something that's emphasized and repeated in Job. So I don't think the fear of the Lord is important in Job. Job's different than Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. Uh, slow down. Um, this is the key passage in Job. And you may think, well, but it's more in the middle of the book. Really? It's the key passage? Yeah, it's very, very important. And I'm going to try to show you uh, how that works. There are lots of voices in the book of Job, right? There's, uh, there's Job, of course. There's his wife, who seems to be an ally with the Hasatan, the, uh, the adversary, the, Satan. She seems to be saying the same thing that the Satan is saying. And then, of course, Job's so-called friends come along, and we hear from them. And then you go through two cycles of this, and you're into a third, and, and the argument just sort of peters out. One of the guys doesn't even speak in the third cycle. Another guy just has very little to say. Job has, still has a lot to say. And I remember when I taught this in my Sunday school class, we were in Job for over a year, and the class was really getting bored. <laughs> When we got into the 20s, you know, and like, is this ever going to end? <laughs> and, uh, and I told them, well, you're supposed to be feeling this way because that's part of the strategy of the book. The discussion is going nowhere. Uh, human wisdom is failing us. You know, the friends are saying God is perfectly just. Job, you must be a sinner. And Job is saying, I am not a sinner. In fact, God is unjust. And you just, you just are hoping that somebody will just say, stop, stop, stop. But there's this young guy, Elihu, and he steps in once Job is finished. And young Elihu, he kind of criticizes everybody, and he thinks he's got it figured out. And so he kind of goes on and on and on for several chapters. Uh, and it's kind of curious because when he finishes, nobody responds to him. The friends don't say anything. Job doesn't say anything. Uh, so you're wondering, how should we understand Elihu? Uh, positive, negative? It, it might be negative. It's kind of like when somebody thinks they know it all and you're talking, you're trying to solve some problem and some guy interrupts and says, I got it figured out and his idea just does, isn't going to work. And you just turn, as I was saying, you just kind of ignore him and move on. Is it that? Or is it he was so right, he silenced everybody? 
Well, people disagree on that. They disagree. Uh, I was at a scholarly convention one time. They were talking about Elihu. How do you take Elihu? And it was very interesting because in the room, the older guys were siding against Elihu. The younger guys kind of liked what he had to say. <laughs> so it seemed to divide along age lines. And it was kind of odd. Uh, I think if you read Elihu, you'll find that he really doesn't add a whole lot to the conversation. There, there's a lot of passion and fire there in his speech, but if you compare, it doesn't sound to me like he's saying a whole lot different from the friends. He's pretty much concluded Job has sinned, uh, and he, he doesn't contribute much. So there's lots of voices in Job. If we look at the structure of the book, you can see this. Um, Here's the structure of the literary structure of the book of Job. And uh, you can divide it up this way, prologue, epilogue, and central section. Central section's really big. <laughs> 3, 1 to 40, 2, 6. Uh, a lot of people who've taught the book of Job, what they do, they cover the prologue and the epilogue, and the central section just sort of gets left out. And my class at church told me, we, we want to study Job. I go, do you really want to study Job? <laughs> do you really mean that? Because if we study it, we're not going to do it that way. We're going to go through the central section. Now, I think they were regretting their request when we got into the 20s, but nevertheless, that's, uh, that's what they wanted to do, and so that's what we did, and we went all the way through. Uh, within the central section, you've got Job's lament. That's where he says, I wish I'd never been born. You know, we, we sometimes think in the prologue where Job says, hey, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And we kind of think that's Job's response to his suffering. Oh, no, no, no. You've got to get into the central section. <laughs> uh, when his friends show up, his attitude changes. And in chapter 3, he basically says, I wish those who could rouse up Leviathan, this mythological creature, I wish they'd rouse him up and he'd just swallow up the day of my birth. Job wants creation to be undone. He'd rather that he'd never existed. That's how much the poor man is suffering. Uh, and then you got the dialogues, and then there's Elihu, and then finally the Lord speaks uh, at the end. Uh, in the dialogues, they're set up this way. Eliphaz and Job, Bildad and Job, Zophar and Job, then we go through it again, and then in the third, Eliphaz and Job, and then Bildad has a little bit to say, Zophar's a no-show, and uh, Job has a lot to say <laughs> in 26, 27 through 28, 29 through 31. We've got like three distinct little speeches in there. Job has a lot to say. The odd thing is, in places in here, he sounds like his friends, and that has caused some scholars to say, Job didn't say that. The text is confused. Really. Bildad must have said that. Zophar must have said. Zophar needs a third speech. So let's give some of Job's stuff to him. <laughs> um, so, no, this really happens. This is probably the standard procedure out there in the Job commentaries that are written by university types. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's very, very uh, interesting. The, 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 but it just kind of peters out. Um, but there, you know, people have a lot to say. But sometimes Job sounds like his friends, and I think what he's doing there, it's not that Job's words or Bildad's words have been falsely attributed to Job. No, what he's doing there, he's parroting his friends. I've been, I've been listening to you guys. I know how you're going to respond. I can do it better than you. <laughs> and so he says what he anticipates his friends saying. 
I, I'm convinced that some of that is going on in here. When Job sounds like his friends, I think that's what's happening. Um, so Job is just really agitated uh, in, in this section. So we have the uh, dialogues. They're fun. And then Elihu comes along, and he's got like four different speeches. He doesn't really stop for air, but he, you know, there's, he's introduced. They're introduced each time. And finally, in the end, the voice, capital V, shows up. In the whirlwind, in the whirlwind, uh, like a warrior. In the Old Testament, when God shows up in the whirlwind, he usually comes to do battle and destroy. Uh, and Job has said earlier in the book, I feel like God has been throwing me around like in a whirlwind, just beating me up awful. Now, that doesn't happen when God shows up, does it? Uh, and, and you're wondering, in light of what Job has said, if maybe God is going to beat him up. God shows up as a warrior, but not to judge Job. Not to judge Job. And then God speaks to Job. Uh, and his uh, first speech, which is up there under the Lord's dialogue with Job. Sorry, I didn't get that far enough down on my PowerPoint. Uh, Job's not convinced. His first reply is not very impressive. And so then the Lord goes into his second speech. And basically what the Lord tells Job in these speeches is, take a look around you, Job. Take a close look at the world in which you live. It's ridden with conflict. The animal kingdom. The sea is trying to overtake the land. The darkness is trying to overtake the light. But every morning, guess what happens? Sun comes up again. Uh, the animal kingdom is ridden with conflict. It's a mess. You live in a battle zone. And I, the implication is you've gotten caught up in this. Um, I'm on your side. If you, by the way, if you think you can do a better job, Job, Job of uh, defeating the forces of evil, put on your royal, royal, uh, regal robes and go out and do it. God's very sarcastic here. Um, and then finally, Job sees in the end what is going on. God is talking to him about spiritual warfare. You've gotten caught up in this and you don't understand uh, what's going on. So that's a lot of voices in Job, but we need to listen to the voice in the end. Just like Ecclesiastes, the frame editor at the end, he gives us the insight we need to, go, to circle back and read the book the way it's supposed to be read. Same thing in Job. God's words at the end give us the perspective we need to go back and read through the whole book again. But God's words to Job are a little confusing. Right at the beginning of that first speech in chapter 38, God says to him, and this doesn't seem to bode well, he answers Job out of the storm and he said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? And you're thinking, yikes. <laughs> um, brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. And then God goes into, were you around when I created the world? Are you the one that control, can control light and darkness? Are you the one that creates the elements of the storm to be used in battle? And then he starts to give him a natural history lesson. Look at all these animals. Uh, and a lot of people have criticized God. Uh, many, many people have criticized God. And they'll say, uh, if God were a pastoral counselor, he's going to get an F. Because Job, poor Job comes to him asking, 
hey, what's going on in the world? It's riddled by injustice. What's going on? He just wants a simple answer. By the way, God gives him one in the speech. He really does. But that's a wrong way to look at it. Remember what Job said earlier to his friends. He said, go to the animals. You can learn a lot from looking at them. Well, it's almost as if God comes and says, I'll take you up on that. Uh, I'm going to teach you some lessons from the animal kingdom. Uh, and so it's all theological. God isn't dodging the question. But notice he says, who is this that darkens my counsel? So he's very critical of what Job has said. Now, what has Job said that darkens wisdom and is wrong? It's flat out wrong. He's being rebuked for this. Well, remember what his friends said. They have a slide rule ethics type thing. God sits up there and he watches what everybody does. And if you're righteous, he rewards you. If you're sinful, he punishes you. It's as simple as that. Do good, be rewarded. Do bad, be punished. Obviously, Job, you have done something wrong. Now, they're reasoning back. No one would be suffering like you are if you hadn't done something wrong. And if you read their arguments, they got it figured out. Job has not shown the proper kindness to the poor. He's guilty of injustice. They got it figured out. That's what they think he's done. Of course, he vehemently <laughs> disagrees with that and, and produces the evidence for why they're wrong. So they're arguing God is always just, and therefore for you to be suffering, you have to have done wrong. Okay. They're... Uh, their, their response, that's their take on everything. Job knows he's righteous. And you may be thinking he's being self-righteous. No, no, no. God at the beginning said, remember he said to the Satan, he said, have you seen my servant Job? He fears me. He obeys me. He shuns evil. Now, he's a wise, righteous person. Have you seen him? And what does the Satan say? He says, well, he's duped you. You give him candy all the time. I'm paraphrasing now. <laughs> um, you give him candy all the time. Take all that away and see what happens. Uh, and what is the Satan doing? He is challenging Job's integrity, and he's also challenging God's wisdom. And that's why, as you're reading through the book of Job, you've got to root hard for Job to not curse God. And he didn't curse God. But he did falsely accuse God of being unjust. His conclusion was, I know I'm a righteous person. I have not done what you're implying and what you're charging me with, friends. And so, the only conclusion I can come to is that God is not just all the time. He acknowledges that we see God's justice at work, but not consistently. Sounds a lot like Ecclesiastes at that point. Uh, we, we, under the sun, observations. Uh, he's not consistently just. And that's what God is challenging him on here. That's how he has darkened counsel. But then it gets really confusing in, at the end in chapter 42. When Job uh, finally is uh, ready to uh, repent in dust and he realizes that he's misspoken and he sees the point God is making. I get it. There's a spiritual war going on. <laughs> And I've got caught up in this, and you're on my side, uh, and uh, I, I just need to trust you. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, one of Job's friends, 
I am angry with you and your two friends. And that's scary because they are theologically orthodox in many ways. God is just. He rewards the righteous. He punishes the wicked. Those are biblical truths. But they thought they had it all figured out as to how God operates in every situation. It's not quite that simple. The righteous can suffer. And God is angry with them. And he says, because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Oh, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. I thought God said to Job, who is this who darkens counsel? Job misspoke. Uh, he accused God of being unjust. His friends accused him of being unjust, as it were. They're both wrong. So how do Job's words contra contrast with his friends? What's, in what way did Job speak correctly about God? I don't get it. Uh, it's, it's the mystery. You've got to answer that question to really understand what the book of Job is doing. So you've got to go back before, you've got to circle back, just like you do in Ecclesiastes. You've got to circle back, get past... God's speech to Job, definitely past Elihu, and get back to the friend's debate with Job and how it ended. And so you got to go back to the peak of Job's argument in chapters 27 and 28. And Job is really getting revved up here. And the friends don't say anything after this. As surely as God lives, who has denied me justice... That's darkening counsel there. He gets rebuked for that later. The Almighty, who has made me taste bitterness of soul, as long as I have life within me, the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips will not speak wickedness, and my tongue will utter no deceit. I will never admit you are in the right. He's really digging his heels in with his friends. Till I die, I will not deny my integrity. And if you think, how can he say that? Remember, that's God's verdict on him. He's, he's consistent with what God said about him, other than this accusation of injustice. But his lifestyle is righteous. I will maintain my righteousness and never let go of it. My conscience will not reproach me as long as I live. So sorry, fellas, I'm not going to say I'm a sinner. Because, and we don't want him to. Because if he does, the Satan is right. See, the Satan is proven right, and God was duped. May my enemies, uh-oh, he's getting ready to call a curse down on his friends. May my enemies be like the wicked, my adversaries like the unjust. So he is appealing to God as the righteous judge, and he is saying, judge them. They have falsely accused me. And it's interesting, at the end, God confronts them. It's like he is answering Job's prayer. But God doesn't judge them. He gives them an opportunity to repent, and Job is going to be their mediator. Remember, and he's going to be the instrument that God uses to bring the friends back. Uh, what hope has the godless when he's cut off? Then he talks about what God will do to the godless in chapter 27. So Job is, is really strong here. I'm going to scroll ahead to chapter 28. And in chapter 28, he's basically going to argue, you can't figure out what God is doing in this world. You can't figure it out. I think he's unjust, but you can't really figure it out. It's beyond us. And so, bottom line, 
All we can do is fear God. Uh, and I wish that he had just stopped there. <laughs> he had it right. But he says, let's see if we can find wisdom. There is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Uh, iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Man puts an end to the darkness. He searches the farthest recesses for ore in the blackest darkness. Far from where people dwell, he cuts a shaft. On and on he goes. You can dig deep. You can dig deep looking for wisdom. Uh, go way down into the ground. But you won't find it. <laughs> it's not there. Uh, so you're searching everywhere for wisdom and you can't find it. Verse 12, where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? Man does not comprehend its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. Maybe if we went to the sea, we could find it. If we went some, did some deep sea diving, maybe wisdom's down there. No, nope, the deep says, it's not in me. The sea says, it's not with me. It can't be bought. Maybe if I paid somebody. I could get wisdom. No, no, it can't be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed in silver, etc., etc. He goes on and mentions like all these different jewels. Where then does wisdom come from? Verse 20. Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds of the air. Destruction and death say, only a rumor of it has reached our ears. God understands the way to it. And he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. It sounds a lot like what God tells him in the speeches. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it. And he said to man, you're never going to, I'm paraphrasing now based on what he said before, you're never going to find out how I'm operating my world. It's beyond you. There's a mystery there. You're never going to be able to completely figure it out. And he said to man, but here's what I want you to do. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. You're trying to find the secret to how the world works and how God operates and be able to explain everything that happens. Uh, nope. <laughs> The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And here we go again. To shun evil is understanding. Job's nailed it. He's nailed it. In fact, a lot of scholars, you're going to be, have a very negative opinion of some of these university scholars that I mentioned. And they're not all universities. Some of them are seminary. It's kind of standard procedure in Job commentaries to say Job didn't say chapter 28. Uh, it, it's too accurate. <laughs> uh, he, di he didn't say, this is the, you know, the editor or somebody else is talking. But it doesn't indicate that there's any change in speaker at the beginning of chapter 28. Job's too agitated to be this reflective. Well, if you've been around somebody who's really suffered, you know that things can go up and they can go down. Uh, and sometimes in the middle of all the emotional agitation, there can be serious reflection and some accuracy. Um, so just because he's emotionally agitated and saying all these things, accusing God, doesn't mean he can't have a moment where he recognizes the truth and reflects on it. And it's part of his defense to his friends. You, you guys think you got it all figured out. Very simple. Because I'm suffering, I must have done something wrong. You, you, you think you can explain everything in light of your simplistic little view of the world. Not true. You really can't know what God is doing. 
I feel as if he's being unjust to me. He said that, but really, you don't know. All God expects from us is to fear him. That's wisdom. And then he goes on in verses 29 through 31 and basically says, I've done that, and it doesn't seem to have paid off. It's this, <laughs> he does get agitated again, very quickly. He goes back into that God is unjust mode. But here, he spoke correctly. Because the friends think you can know wisdom, you, in the sense of you can figure out what God is saying and doing perfectly. And Job says, no, you can't. All God expects us to do is obey him, and that's what I've done. And that's why I'm so frustrated, because he, he doesn't seem to be watching and paying attention. I'm suffering as if I'm some evil person, and I'm not. But I'm going to hold, hang in there, and I'm going to continue to say I'm righteous, and I hope God punishes you guys. <laughs> That's kind of it here. <laughs> That's kind of the way it works. Uh, and then, in the end, God says, I think Job was correct. And I wish he'd just kind of stayed here with it. Uh, and so that's kind of the way I see the book of Job. Uh, and so it's that divine voice at the end that gives us the perspective. Yeah, Job darkened counsel, so we got to go back and see what did he say that was really wrong. God's unjust. That was wrong. Um, but what did he say that was correct? He spoke about wisdom correctly, and he realized it was the fear of the Lord. So uh, David said for me to go to nine, but I, he, I, I think we've been talking long enough. I got a little early start. Is that okay to kind of wrap it up now? Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, so um, just to summarize, <laughs> hopefully you see Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job, they're on the same page. <laughs> they're on the same page with this. Uh, they're all saying that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's uh, really what God expects from us. And those books are consistent in that regard. Um, Proverbs, straight out. You know, it, it's the beginning of uh, wisdom. It's where you start. It's the foundation, the fundamental principle for everything. Ecclesiastes, it doesn't sound like he's in line with that, but then in the end you find out, oh, this is where this is leading. Fear God, keep his commandments. Then you circle back and you see what the, the author is trying to do. He's breaking them down before he builds them up. Uh, Job, uh, God in the end says, Job has spoken correctly about me. Uh, you, you guys, your view of wisdom is faulty. You think you understand so much. You, you don't. You can never understand divine, what God is doing in the world fully. He's God, you're not. Uh, Job was right when he said it basically comes down to fear the Lord and shun evil. Um, and don't be, don't be falsely accusing people when you don't have all the facts. So, in the end there, bottom of page 6 and over on to 7, I've kind of summarized. In the end, this is what the wisdom books teach us. Proverbs. If you want to live life wisely, that is, in a way that pleases God and, bless, and receives his blessing, you need to fear him. That is, humbly submit to his authority and turn away from evil. Ecclesiastes. A little bit different wrinkle. But when you discover you cannot find meaning in life on your own, and the world makes no sense, fear God and keep his commandments. You know, obey him. Turn away from evil. Uh, and the longer you live, 
And I think the longer the race is living and researching, it's becoming apparent to me that we really don't understand much. The universe is vaster than we ever imagined as they discover more and more about it. Our bodies are way more complex than we ever imagined, way beyond what Darwin would have understood in his day. Uh, very, very, very complex. All kinds of little machines doing their work. Uh, intricate design at work. Uh, we, we, we really don't understand it. And we, and we look out there and we see uh, good people sometimes seem to be persecuted and punished and they suffer and bad people seem, I, I don't get it, I don't understand it. And Ecclesiastes is telling us, don't worry about it. <laughs> it's beyond you. You're not going to be able to figure it all out. You're not going to be able to find meaning in life apart from God. What God expects from you is to fear him and keep his commandments. And my mother is an example of this. Uh, she came to Christ when she was in her mid-30s. Uh, and uh, she said, uh, when I trusted in the Lord, you know, she went down to the front and all that. She, she says, I just felt like a new person. I just felt like a new person. And the next morning, I just felt totally different inside. Uh, and uh, one of the neighbors, and Satan's always there. The, one of the neighbor ladies came over, and my mother was telling her what had happened the night before, and she goes, oh, Ethel, my mother's name was Ethel, old-fashioned name. Uh, she says, you don't want to believe that. You don't, you don't want to become a fanatic. But my mother just let it go in one ear and out the other. Uh, she, uh, and she never wavered. She never wavered. And she was always faithful. And whenever she talked about Jesus, it was always the Lord. That's the way she would... Now, you don't call Jesus that if you don't fear God. See, the Lord, and tears would come to her eyes whenever she talked about what the Lord had done for her. And halfway through college, I had my crisis of faith uh, that I mentioned earlier, and I remember that summer, I was just agonizing, trying to figure everything out philosophically. I had all these pagan professors, you know, who were teaching me stuff, you know, philosophy and all this, and I was just struggling with all this. Is the Bible really true? Why do I believe all this? Is it because I grew up with it and my parents taught it to me? Uh, or is it something I really believe? And my mother would just, you know, she could see me, <laughs> I think, and she would just give me these little Christian books. Here's the daily bread, Bobby. Read it. <laughs> Scripture, you know, with a little exposition. And she just, you know, prayed. And she didn't have any, she never took a, she wasn't a college graduate, she never went to, she went to a business school and, you know, she worked a little bit during the war, but basically her whole life was raising her sons. Uh, but she knew what she believed, you know, and never wavered from that, never took a philosophy class, couldn't, couldn't answer my questions. But you know, by the end of the summer, guess who won out? My mother. Because, see, I couldn't get around the fact that something radical had happened to them, my father and my mother. Uh, I remember as a little boy when they came to Christ, my father stopped drinking. He stopped having these, you know, angry rages. One night he got so mad he didn't even go out the, the door. He just popped open the window and went out the window. It was, it was first floor. I mean, it was... <laughs> No more drinking, no more anger, and all that. It was, all that was gone. 
And I just couldn't, you know, I'd seen them changed radically. Uh, and my mother was just such a devoted follower of the Lord. I mean, they were trusting Jesus. And quite frankly, when I compared my father to my college professors, there was just no comparison. And my father was my hero, you know, fighter pilot, World War II, USS Yorktown, CB-10. You know, and uh, I, I remember him saying, uh, in the ready room, there's no atheists. <laughs> One of the great thrills in my life was I got to visit the Yorktown. It's parked in, Car in Charleston Harbor. You can go there. And when I walked into the ready room with my wife and daughter, my brother with me, I just about lost it because uh, I saw up on the board my father's flight leader's name. They had certain names of guys who, and he idolized that guy. And there he was, Truman Place. And uh, I realized this is, where, this is where it happened, right here. This is where there were no atheists. And, and so my father was, was a great man. You know, he was very, very smart. He worked in a bank. He was an accountant. You know, he, he worked in a bank. He was an officer. Uh, so he was just as sharp as these university guys. And, uh, and he believed in Jesus. And I had seen the transformation that occurred. And my mother believed in Jesus and never wavered. You know, she was dying. I went to see her in, uh, in the hospital uh, in Ohio when she was dying, and she died a few days later, and she was witnessing to the nurses, you know. And uh, if anybody ever challenged her, you know, philosophically, it was just, no, no, you're a sinner. Jesus died for your sin. You need to fear God. <laughs> you know, that, that's what you need to do. Uh, and uh, somebody asked her, are you ready to go? And she goes, oh, I'm going to miss my boys. I'm going to miss my boys. And I, I said to her, Mom, we'll be along before too long. <laughs> she said, but I, I want to see Bob, you know, or my father, and I, and I want to see the Lord. Um, so that's basically what Ecclesiastes says. You're never going to figure it all out. Um, but here's, here's what God wants from you. To fear God and keep his commandments. And, and that's my mother. Uh, Job... Uh, in Job, basically the point is when you're overwhelmed by trouble and suffering, like poor Job was, uh, and maybe you're tempted to blame God for what is happening, because after all, he's sovereign. You know, why is he doing this to me? Uh, realize that the complexities of how God runs our conflict-ridden world are beyond our understanding. It really is a fallen world. And there is a big cosmic battle going on, spiritual warfare, <laughs> that I think started before creation of the world in which we live. And Paul talks about it. And it's, uh, it, it's going on. We're living in a war zone. And we're combatants in all of this. And Paul tells us what our spiritual weaponry and armor are. <laughs> it, it, the enemy is not flesh and blood. It's real important to remember that these days. As it's real easy to get fixated on certain people who are saying things out there that are just totally non-Christian. But there's a spiritual force that's energizing them. It's important to remember that. Um, and that's really kind of all beyond our understanding. I mean, ultimately, can we really ask the question why God allows this to go on? We know where we're heading. He's going to establish his kingdom. Why does he allow this to go on? Why does he give Satan such a long leash so he can go up in people's yards and poop all over the place? Why, why does he do that? Why did he let the Satan talk to him the way he did in Job 1? I don't get it. If I'm God, I'm going to say, how dare you talk to me that way? And incinerate him right on the spot. No, we don't. Ultimately, we can't answer those questions. But what Job says, and he's right, he spoke correctly about God on this. 
you can't figure it out. Uh, the Bible gives us some insight into it, and that's the irony. God does give Job some insight into how he's working in the world, you know, the spiritual warfare and all that, but he doesn't have all the answers. Ultimately, it comes down to when uh, you're overwhelmed by suffering, you fear the Lord, you keep fearing the Lord, and you turn away from evil. That's, what, that's all God expects from you. And my wife's mother <laughs> is uh, an example for me in that she passed away last year. I, I had the privilege of doing her funeral, speaking uh, about her. And she's a great lady, great lady. Um, lost three children, three sons, um, one at the age of 17, one was in his 30s, and one was in his 50s. Uh, you know, in one of the Lord of the Rings movies, one of the guys says no father should ever have to bury his, his child. Well, my mother-in-law buried three. Uh, and the morning after her 17-year-old son was killed she was in church because her attitude is where else would I want to be I want to be with the Lord's people among them uh, this is where it's at and she never wavered I never heard her once question God because she understood that ultimately I can't figure it out I don't know why God's taken me through this but I'm going to continue to fear him and I'm going to continue to obey him and turn away from evil, and I'm going to walk with him. And so hopefully you see that the sphere of the Lord is a very important theme, and it's a very practical one. And these three wisdom books have a lot to say about it. They give us insight into life. So don't get frustrated when you can't figure things out. Um, it's All God really expects from us as his children is to humbly... Come before him. And that's why Jesus, I think, says you've got to be like children. You've got to know you're dependent upon God. Children know they're vulnerable and they're dependent on an adult. We've got to be that way with God and just keep plugging away, doing what he tells us to do. Uh, share the gospel. Uh, be kind to one another. Uh, and uh, be an example of love to the, uh, to the sinful world. So uh, that's it. We're going to have a Q&A time. Let me pray, though, before we transition into uh, that. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that we can find in your word all we need to know for this time that we're in right now. Uh, we realize that someday we'll know more. Uh, but in the meantime, help us to be God-fearers. Help us to trust you so much that we would do what Abraham did when you asked him to do something that seemed totally out of character. Help us to trust you when things don't make sense. Uh, help us to uh, share your truth with those who are out there trying to figure things out. They need to hear the truth. Help us to share it with them. And uh, when suffering comes our way and doesn't make sense to us, uh, help us, Job has gone before us, uh, help us not to blame you, but to keep at it, to fear the Lord, uh, and shun evil, and follow the way of the Savior. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. You're welcome. It reminds me. We ended up almost 9 o'clock. So. It reminds me of Augustine's words concerning the Gospel of John. What you just heard tonight was deep enough for an elephant to swim in and shallow enough for a baby to take a bath in. Right? Bottom line, trust and obey, for there's no other That's way, right. Right? A good on another song. level, wow, <laughs> the layout of the, those three books, uh, you aren't going to hear 
that uh, that was fantastic. So thank you very much. We do have a. We'd like to take twenty minutes and avail yourself to some asking some questions. We got some feedback. I know you may need to use the facilities. They're right out there, so you may do that. But uh, we'd like just to give a little bit of time. If you, you we can't take the mic to you, so you're going to have to be loud. Stand, ask your question. Uh, but uh, we'll give you a few minutes to do that. If you, anyone have a question for Bob? Yes, Eugene. Hi, Eugene. I don't think he, I don't, as far as I can tell in the book, he never found out about the Satan. But it's interesting. I think he, I think he did understand that there was a spiritual reality out there that was against him. Because in the end, after the Lord has been talking about all the animal kingdom, he talks about behemoth and then Leviathan. And so what is Leviathan? You know, people are unsure. The consensus seems to be a crocodile on steroids. <laughs> because when you read the description, it's more than a crocodile. There's, there's, a, there's a spiritual dimension. You've got to go back to chapter 3. Job talked about Leviathan. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, Scottish will go that way. Uh, when you go back to chapter 3, Leviathan's not just a mere creature. So I think Leviathan is a symbol of the devil, a Satan. And, and you see this elsewhere in the, uh, in the Bible. Leviathan is an enemy that God defeats when he creates the world. He's an enemy that God is going to defeat in Isaiah 27. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think he does. I think he does, but at the same time, some people are going to say, yeah, but God allows him to do it. And it's interesting in the book of Job, even though God allows Satan to do these things to Job, in the end, in fact, at the beginning, God says to, uh, to Satan, you have incited me against my servant Job without reason. God takes some ownership for what's going on. He has allowed it. But it's, I think of it as a test, kind of like what he did with Abraham. I'm going to give the floor to somebody else. Well, I like, I like Eugene, Eugene and I are having a good dialogue there, but that's okay. He's good friends with Eugene Merrill. They went oh, to together. Yeah. you're a friend of Dr. Merrill. Yeah. Yeah, well, Dr. Merrill was first my teacher uh, in, in, yeah, and then... Then we became colleagues for many years. And uh, pray for his wife. Uh, you probably know his wife is, Janet is having a rough time right now physically. So, yeah. Okay. Another question? Great. That's great, Eugene. Anything else? You don't get this opportunity very often. Yes, Rick. Who do you love most, your son or me? 
I think that's part of it. Yeah, I, th I, I don't think it's an either or. I, I think what you're saying is true. It's part of the test. But I'm going to, when it says God tested, in, when God talks in verse 12, he says, now I know that you fear me. See, so he's being tested. Are you, do you really fear me in the sense that you're going to obey me? And what makes it such a great test is he is... He is demanding allegiance to himself rather than the promised son who, who was given to him. So, yeah, what you say is part of the test for sure. Yeah. I don't see it as neither or. Yeah. That makes sense? Yes, sir. Yeah. Good. Any other? Well, in the text, it's not doing evil. <laughs> in other words, you, you obey the Lord and you shun evil. So it's really a moral category. If you fear God, you will obey him, you will do righteousness, and you will turn away from evil. So it's not doing evil, if I'm understanding your question. That's the way I would answer it, yeah. Unless you're looking for something a little more subtle. Yeah, okay, that, that's good. <laughs> yes, sir. You're off. Also incorporates the concept of awe as well as apprehension. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some of these words, and we know this from English, words are what we call polysemantic. They have different nuances depending on the context. And so in some cases, yeah, I think the fear of the Lord is a reverential awe, uh, especially in a worship-type context. Sometimes it's, it's just terror. In Jonah 1, the sailors feared the Lord with great fear, it says in the Hebrew. They, they, that kind of fear that's terror. Oh, yeah. It'll lead to that. It'll lead to that. And, what, and, the, and how we get to obedience is what we call metonymy. Lot, that's the way words work. Is this getting too technical? <laughs> uh, well, you know from English, if I say smoking can kill you, if you want to be a hyper-literalist, you're going to say, no, it can't. Putting a cigarette in your mouth is not going to kill you, like it's got poison in it or something. It's going to kill you immediately. That's not true. You know what I mean when I say that. I mean consistent smoking can kill you because smoking produces lung cancer and other awful diseases that will kill you. And that's the cause for the effect. We put the cause smoking because we're trying to warn somebody. We're trying to let them know what seems harmless can actually end up killing you because of what it causes. See? We, in our, we, we just understand this is the way language works. Uh, and you see this in the Bible when Cain says, my iniquity is too great for me to bear. There's a Hebrew word abon that's used there, and sometimes it refers to the sin. Sometimes it refers to guilt. See the connection? When you sin, you're guilty. And... If you're guilty, what happens? You get punished. <laughs> so when Cain says, my abone is too great for me to bear, how are you going to translate it? My sin is too great for me to bear? What would that mean? Uh, my guilt? If, he, if he's saying my guilt, he's on the threshold of repentance, but he's not. In the context, the Lord has just given him the punishment, and then he complains about the punishment right after he says that. He's using the word in that sense, punishment. 
Same thing with fear. See, fear starts out with terror. Well, in certain contexts, it's more of a reverential awe that it will produce. And then furthermore, the next step is, if you really have that reverential awe, what will you do? You will obey. So it, it's the way the word works. So you've got to, always got to look at context when you're studying these words. You know this from English, like the word honor. We use the word honor in, in different ways. My dad was a, a you know, judge. Uh, yes, your honor. No, your honor. If I'm out on the golf course, I say, you got the honor. You, know, you beat me on the last hole. That doesn't say anything about your character, but it's a specialized use. <laughs> Okay, you, 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 you birdied and I parred. You got the, let's hope that's what it was. <laughs> Double, triple bogey. <laughs> uh, but you got the honor, you know. Uh, it's an honor for me to be here tonight. It's a privilege for me to be here. Uh, or if I say, thank you for this honor, I've, I've received some kind of reward. That's the way words work. And so in any given context, a word usually has one, uh, use, one uh, reference or usage. Uh, sometimes you get tricky and you might have a double meaning uh, with words, but usually, you, 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 and that's what we teach our students in seminary, how to do word studies. How to figure out, okay, here's the range of meaning for a word, which one is the best choice in this context? We have to do this as translators, we have to do it as interpreters, and uh, we spend a lot of time doing that kind of thing. Yeah, so. So yes, sir, uh, in some contexts, reverential awe would be the focus. Uh, in other contexts, obedience would be the focus. Sometimes just absolute terror, <laughs> which can lead to the other. Yes. Thank you for your teaching tonight. You're welcome. Well, you have to search the scriptures to find out what the moral will of God is. I didn't have time to get into all that tonight. <laughs> but, you know, you, you, read, you read the Bible and, you, and, you, and, you know, lots of times you can boil it down to love one another. You know, there's certain key commands, but the Lord tells us to do lots of things in the New Testament. And so, to me, that's what it means to be obedient. Well, I bet they did. <laughs> Where I went to college, they didn't have a list like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, we have to go back to the scriptures and we have, to, we have to interpret them correctly and ask ourselves, what exactly is this passage saying? Uh, you know, in the New Testament, you've got these vice lists. I don't see in those lists, thou shalt not dance or anything like that. I hope, that, I hope that's okay. <laughs> uh, some, some Christians back in the day, they wouldn't uh, do that, but uh, my wife and I have ventured into square dancing. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I, I, but a lot of things that people said were evil back then, uh, I don't think really were. We have to search the scriptures. And, and we're always going to be, the danger is, one extreme is antinomianism, where you just say anything goes. There is no law, as it were. The other extreme is legalism, where you're making rules that really have no solid 
basis in the New Testament. So that's why we carefully interpret the scriptures and try to figure out what exactly God wants us to do. Yeah. You're asking about the date of Job and, uh, and all of that. Uh, it's, it's set. I have a handout on this if you want to. <laughs> Dave's going to send stuff. Uh, when, you, <laughs> when, when, you read, when you read the book, it seems to be set in the patriarchal period. It seems to be very early. Seems, that's when it seems to be happening. Um, but when it was actually written and came into the Hebrew canon, that's another question. The events seem to have occurred early. See the distinction? It's just like uh, the events in Genesis, early chapters of Genesis with the patriarchs and all that, all the way through. That all happened long before Moses, but Moses is the one who wrote about it, <laughs> and he's the one who basically canonized it. So the date of authorship and the recognition of it as scripture can be later than the events. And so that's the way I'd answer with Job. It's very, very early. The events are way back there. Whether it was written first, I don't know. Um, I don't know. My, my hunch is that Moses is the one who initially gave us canon, and then it probably, there seems to be a great interest in wisdom literature in the time of Solomon. So I'm wondering if maybe God brought it through his providence into the canon around that time. And when Proverbs is being written, and Ecclesiastes, if you see, uh, Solomon is the traditional author there. Oh. One more? No? Yes, sir. Can you uh, give me a comparison between fear of the Lord and trust in the Lord? Well, they're very closely related. Um, I think they're, they're slightly different. Fear is where I respect the Lord's authority and obey him. Trust is when I understand his authority, I, I then become dependent on him. So I think there's a subtle difference between the two, but they're certainly closely related, and it almost seems like you can't have one without the other to me. So, uh, but they're different words and different, uh, and, and sometimes you have, have those things and they get used interchangeably sometimes because they're so closely related. But uh, I, I would say fear of the Lord entails trusting in him. And that's certainly what happened with Abraham. But it's interesting that God calls it fear. Now I know that you fear me. And he really was trusting the Lord. So uh, trust can be a way that we demonstrate fear, it seems like in that particular case. Because later Paul talks about him believing, say trusting, belief. And so very, very closely related concepts, it seems to me. Thank you. Yeah. Well, Bob, thank you very much for an incredible evening. Oh, okay. huh? I still think the Leviathan is the Loch Ness Monster, but okay. <laughs> he thinks Leviathan is the Loch Ness Monster. Um, that's no. okay. But you know, it's great. We, we talked about the Lord and Howard Stern all in one night. Yeah, so that's we right. Are. We're going to have to do some editing probably on <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, we will. Uh, thank you very much for your time. And Deborah, it was great having you here this evening as well. We'd like to close the evening in prayer. So Tim, if you would. Sure. Thank you. First of all, I'd again like to, to thank Bob for being here.
Uh, I think everyone's enjoyed our time together and we've certainly been enlightened. And uh, with that, I'd like to close with a prayer. Father, our prayer this evening is that you might enable us to have such a grand vision of you that we might fear the Lord, that we might tremble in your presence. We pray that you'll forgive our flippant and cavalier attitude toward you, which we exhibit at times. Forgive our spiritual apathy. And we ask that you would instill us with the sense of awe, majesty, and adoration of you. Help us to see that you're not merely a redeemer, but a judge. Not merely a God of love, but also holiness. Work in us a sense of you, such that we are continually aware that our thoughts, our deeds, our motives are constantly before you, and you will judge them. Help us to fear sin, not because of its consequences, but because it grieves you. Give us the fear that motivates us to seek you and please you. And as we've heard this evening, when it's all done, and the conclusion is this, fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. We pray these things and glorify you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.